What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Normally we like to work our way through books of the Bible because we're a church that believes the Bible. We submit ourselves to the Bible. We believe that God's spoken to us through his word. But right now we're working our way through a series on the Apostles' Creed, and that's because the Apostles' Creed is one of the most ancient summaries of our faith that's in existence. It's been around for almost the entire history of Christianity. People all over the world, billions of people all over the world have said the words to this ancient creed. And so we're going through it and looking at how the Bible supports what the creed is saying and how, it's a, how the creed is a good summary of the Bible's teaching. And this week we're talking through this section of the creed that says this. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. You can summarize this section of the creed with three words. And it's these. Jesus is king. Jesus is is king. A lot of times we resort to treating Jesus like a used car that we need to convince our friends to buy in hopes that it might make their lives better. So we tell them empty promises about how the car is going to make their life better, about how it's an amazing car, how it won't ever let them down. We tell them these hyped up things about what the car is, all without actually showing them the car. But friends, I'm not a used car salesman here today trying to get you to buy something that you don't want. I am here today standing as an emissary from the Lord proclaiming to you a simple truth. Not please buy my car, but Jesus is king. It's not, will you please buy this? But it's bow to our king. He is omnipotent. He is ruling. He is king. You must bow in submission to him. And I bring an invitation. Because as you bow the knee, you are invited to a wedding banquet, a feast. You are being invited to the wedding banquet of God, where him and his church are united forever. You are being united with Christ as you submit to him as king. He would like for you to attend. He's a kind king. 
He's a patient king. He's a gentle king. He's a good king. But in the words of C.S. Lewis, he is not a safe king. In his great children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis is, is describing the Christ figure, Aslan. And they, as he's describing the king, one of the children asks Mr. Beaver, who's describing Aslan to them, but he doesn't sound very safe. And Mr. Beaver responds in such a great way. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's a king, I tell you. And that is our king. Jesus will put you through and push you through and hold you through more than you would ever take if you did not follow him as king. He will ask more of you than you'd ever naturally give. He literally calls his disciples to lay down their lives in submission to him fully. He calls his disciples, weird sayings of Jesus, he calls his disciples to pick up their cross, pick up your method of execution and follow me. Rid me of you. Rid me of me as I follow you. He says, follow me with everything. Lay down your life. For it's not you who lives, but Christ who lives within you. But he's the king. And what else are you supposed to do? Because he's a good king. So let's look at this section of the creed. I'm going to split it up like this. First, what has he done as a king? How do we know he's king? What's he done as past king? What is he doing as king, number two? And number three, uh, what's he going to do as king? What's his future plan as king? So number one, how do we know that he is king? How do we know that he's king? So we've been going through this creed week by week, and, and over the past several weeks, we've gone through a lot of this. We've gone through his death, his, his burial, his descent into hell. Hope they handled that one pretty well a couple weeks ago. Um, they, then we talked about his resurrection, and now this week we're at this aspect of the ascension. So Jesus died, he was resurrected, and then what? Well, he ascended. But you know, I never asked that question, what happened to Jesus after the resurrection, until I was like four years into my Christian life. I became a Christian when I was 14. I don't remember ever being taught what happened to Jesus after he was resurrected until I was like 18 years old. I don't know if I wasn't listening or if it just wasn't taught. It is a more obscure uh, part of the Bible, a more obscure doctrine for us. But it's one that we just don't teach as often. The creed says he ascended into heaven. The most clear passage on this ascension is in Acts chapter 1. And let me tell you this. This might be why it doesn't get taught very often. Every time that I read Acts chapter 1 and I read this section... I say, well, that was weird. It's just a weird part. It's, it's, it's odd. It sounds different. Um, so here we go. This is, I'm going to read it. We'll put it on the screen for you. If you want to turn in your Bible, you're more than welcome to. So when they had come together, this is after Jesus' res- Acts is the recording of what the, it's the Acts of the Apostles is the full name of the, the book. And it's the recording of what Jesus' followers did after 
uh, Jesus went back into heaven. And so at the very beginning, it kind of records a little bit of, of Jesus' last words and, and what happened here. And so here's Jesus' disciples gathered together. And so it says this, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're like, they're like okay, you're king. You've r- risen from the dead. It's time to be king. Why don't you restore Israel to our former glory? And Jesus says this, and it was probably shocking to them. Uh, the rest of this passage, the disciples are just like, what just happened? They don't understand. He said to them, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking at him, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So weird. That's just an odd passage as we read it. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and then he's lifted up into heaven, and then he disappears into the clouds. And that's not where the oddness ends, because then while the disciples are just like, eh? Two men in white robes appear next to them and start explaining what things just happened. Uh, the way that the Bible describes these guys is pretty apparent if you've, written a lot, if you've read a lot of the Bible, that when people, when men show up in white robes, kind of out of nowhere, those are usually angels in human form. And so these angels have shown up, and the first readers would have understood that these were re- angels telling them. And it sounds like, as we read this, though, it's just a, a bizarre thing where Jesus kind of ascends into the sky. He's just like floating up there. It sounds like he became like the world's first astronaut, Uh, just floating up into space and going into the clouds. But as I've contemplated this, I've kind of been thinking, well, how else would he do it? What are your options for returning to heaven? Is he just supposed to disappear one day? The options are actually limited. I love how J.I. Packer breaks this down. J.I. Packer was a great author. He recently died. And uh, he breaks it down like this. Withdrawal had to take place somehow, and going up, down, or sideways, failing to appear or suddenly vanishing were the only possible ways. So I love how he just lists out, it's a multiple choice question, he can go up, down, sideways, (laughs) he can can slowly disappear, or he can vanish uh, suddenly, or he can just fail to appear. He can just vanish without, you know, Irish goodbye Jesus. He just like disappears without saying anything to anybody. Which would, J.I. Packer continues, which would signify most clearly that Jesus would henceforth be reigning in glory? So it's the symbolism behind it. It's not that he, it's not that like the heaven was the sky, but the, the Bible is really clear that there's a symbolic form here and Jesus is returning back to this place this other place where he reigns with God and he symbolically does it by raising into the heavens because heaven can have that multiple meaning of sky 
or the place where God dwells. And so Jesus returns back to the place where God dwells by symbolically returning to that place by raising in the air. Since we talk about the ascension so rarely as a church, is it really important for us? Is, this, is all of this important that we talk about how Jesus disappeared from earth? What does it mean for us? And I think that the logical conclusion that we might draw as we think about and contemplate the ascension is this, that Jesus is less present to us than what he was to the disciples. That's the natural logical conclusion that we come to because he's no longer bodily with us here. He left us. There's this scene in Jurassic Park that I quote all the time that nobody knows, but it's like the the lawyer runs out of the car and then the little girl starts screaming like, he left us, he left us. That's how I felt when my first child was born and all the nurses left the room. Like, they left us. It's like with the dinosaurs. I didn't know what to do. And then with the second and third, I'm like, can you please leave us? Uh, We're good. The, The natural assumption is that he's left us. He's no longer bodily with us. And that his presence isn't as complete. But that's not what he did. The ascension, get this church, the ascension means that Jesus is more present with all of us, with each of us today than he was when he was bodily with his disciples. Because think about it like this, if he was still in a human body on earth. He would be limited to the number of people he could be with at one time. But now he has sent his Holy Spirit and he has promised to be with us forever until the end of the age. I love that the way that one commentator puts it. He says, when the New Testament writers speak of the ascension, they're not describing Jesus' absence, but his sovereign presence throughout creation. He has not gone away, but has become even more fully present. His ascent to the right hand of the Father is his public enthronement over all worldly power. Because he ascended, his life is universally available. Which leads to our next point. What is he doing as king? So he ascended into heaven. What is he doing now? The creed puts it like this. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. 1 Peter 3 speaks of this passage. And 1 Peter 3 says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father with angels, authorities, and powers having been, having been subjected to him. So what is Jesus doing as he's risen into the heavens? What is he doing in that place? Jesus is reigning and ruling. And how is he doing it? The creed describes it and the Bible describes it as he's sitting. Don't overlook that little detail that he's sitting down. Our Lord is sitting down. And how is that significant? Well, in an ancient culture, unlike our culture, in our culture, um, many of us work behind a computer, behind a desk. So when we want to get work done, Many of us, if we're not in one of the trades or something like that, or, or retail or, or uh, service or something, um, but many of us will sit when we want to work. But in Jesus' culture, he was a carpenter. You don't sit when you're working. So in Jesus' culture, this symbolizes, I'm done. And so as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, 
one thing that that shows us is that his work is completed. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And as he takes a seat, he is declaring that his work is done. That he's seated. Now he's in the place of honor next to God the Father, in the place of unity. Hebrews 1.3 puts it like this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love how this passage, Hebrews 1.3, unlike our normal descriptions of the gospel, he goes straight from the crucifixion to the ascension. Do you notice that? He doesn't talk about the resurrection even. He just says, hey, the ascension is so important that we can kind of use it as shorthand even for the resurrection. That he made purification for our sins on the cross, and now he's seated with God on high. This means that we don't need anything else for Jesus to do to make us righteous. We can't add to his work. It is finished. It is finished. And what's he doing there? What is Jesus doing at this right hand of the Father? Romans 8, this passage that we read earlier. So good. If you have never read your Bible before, or if you haven't read your Bible in a long time, I want you to do something. Write down Romans 8. Write it down. It is the most studied chapter in the whole Bible, I would dare to say. Maybe Genesis 1 and Romans 8. Romans 8 is the theology chapter. It is like the, if you ask most pastors, you could live with one, book, one chapter of the Bible for the rest of your life. It would probably be Romans 8 for most of us. It is such an important passage, and it's so heartfelt. Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus' work is done, but he applies that work. He continues that work through interceding for us. You might ask, why does he need to intercede for me? If his work is done, if God loves me completely, why does Jesus need to continue to intercede? I love, there's a book that we've given out to a lot of people. If you haven't gotten a copy, we have more copies here today. We'd love to give you a copy um, called Gentle and Lowly. And it's just one of the best books that's been written in the past 30 years uh, from a Christian standpoint. And the author there puts it like this. He says, intercession applies what the atonement accomplishes. Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work. Not a reflection of anything lacking in his earthly work. Christ's intercession reflects how profoundly personal our rescue is. His interceding for us reflects his heart for us. Church family. Hear this truth. Just because Jesus has ascended and he's no longer walking on earth bodily does not mean that he's no longer present. Jesus is alive and he is active. Jesus is interceding for you, church. He's interceding for you. He is more present today than he ever has been. 
when he was bodily on earth. He's not only present in Israel, but he's present here in Somerville, Massachusetts. He's doing a work here, church. He's reigning as king. And he's praying for you. Even when your prayer life stinks, family, brothers and sisters. And let's, let's be honest. A lot of our prayer lives, they smell worse than dirty diapers. Our prayer lives, they stink. But Christ is praying for us. He's interceding for us. He's on our side. He's caring for us. He's applying what He's already done for us. His love is active. When you wake up tomorrow morning, know this. Jesus is praying for you. That He cares about that day. He wants your best. And ask yourself this question. And this might be kind of a scary question. How can I follow the Savior who's interceded for me today? Ask yourself, if Jesus is praying for me, if he's wanting my best, what's he praying for me today? That's what he's doing. He's praying for us, and he's reigning as king. Lastly, what will he do as king? Finally, the creed puts it like this. And he says, the creed says, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is taken from a lot of different passages, but 2 Timothy 4 probably makes it the most clear when he says it like this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So what, what this is teaching us, just as Acts 1 taught us, is that Christ has ascended, but he will descend again. And when he descends again, he will judge the living and the dead. The New Testament writers were hype on this. The New Testament writers loved this fact because the New Testament has over 300 references to the second coming of Christ in the Scriptures. That's on, ref, on average, once every 13 verses, the Bible talks about the return of Jesus. They were obviously really excited about this, really proud of it. But to us, it's not so much exciting as it is embarrassing. Like anytime you hear someone talking about the return of Jesus, I'll, I do it too. Almost you go immediately, here we go. Like, like, you see the signs on the side of the road or the people holding them at game saying, like, Jesus is coming. And you hear people all the time predicting that he, when he's going to come again. And that might be one reason why we are embarrassed by this doctrine of him coming again. Because there's an assortment of dodos who do not read the Bible, obviously, because the Bible is really clear. You do not know when Jesus is coming again. It says it in lots of different places. But these uh, endearing idiots continue to say over and over again when they think he's coming. And then he doesn't show up, and they're just a laughing, a, a, a tool for us to laugh at. And I think that most of them mean well, and many of them are actually brothers and sisters. They're just confused, and so we have grace for them. 
But the Bible is really clear. We do not know when they're going to come. And so when people do that, when people predict the coming of Christ, it leads to skepticism about it. Obviously so. And so I'm sorry if you've been duped by one of these guys or if one of these guys has just like turned you off to Christianity. It's not the Bible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's men, like all of us, who make mistakes. We're also embarrassed by this doctrine because it's so culturally unacceptable to talk about Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead, right? That's not something that's culturally amenable to us today. We don't like to think about a God who judges. Can't God just love everyone? Why does he have to judge anyone? Well, let's just think about that for one minute. I'm not going to go through the full... I, I would love to meet with you and talk with you more about this if that's something you ask or are having a hard time with. But if we have a God who doesn't judge, what don't we have? Justice. And what has our culture been screaming for more than anything over the past year? Justice. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. That is a plea for come Lord Jesus. We want justice. We want things to reign in the rule. But here's what we don't want. We don't want justice for ourselves. I want God to come and I want him to bring justice for them. Those people who are really wrong. But here's where we get off on this. We get off on it because all of us are them. Each one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And every one of us here is a mixed bag of good and evil. We have that living within us. Sure, you may not be as evil as you could be. But no one is. Even serial killers do nice things on occasion. And no one is as evil as they could be. But no one is as good as they could be either. You know, Mother Teresa was occasionally selfish. And when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, the light is going to shine. And here's the thing with God. There's no hiding Whatever you're hiding behind right now, whether it's your righteous deeds or your intellect or your academia or your, your position in work, whatever makes you feel good about yourself at the end of the day, you, all the things that you do for society, which I'm sure are good, but God is going to see through all of those things. He's going to recognize those things, but he's also going to see the stuff where you fall short, where you act selfishly and pridefully. Who can stand up to those seeing eyes? Who can stand up to that judgment? No one but Christ alone. You see, in Christ alone, we are found righteous. In Christ alone, we are covered in righteousness. Not only are our evil deeds not seen, not only are our evil deeds forgiven, but we are covered with the goodness of Christ. We are covered with the righteousness of Jesus so that when he sees us, all he sees is the son he loves. You see, this is the gospel. This is the good news. That when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, that though we deserve to be judged just like everyone else, if we're found in Christ, we will be made like him. You see, in Christ, 
We don't dread that day. We don't dread the end. In Christ, we long for Christ to come. We long for Jesus to come back and judge the living and the dead. Because what does he do when he judges the living and the dead? He brings justice that we all long for. That's why the Bible ends. One of the last verses of the Bible says, Come, Lord Jesus. And that is our prayer, especially as we face injustice in our lives, as we see wrong things happening around us. We pray, Come, Lord Jesus. And when He comes, church, when He comes, things will be made right. When He comes, all the wrongs will become right. When He comes, all the sad things will be made untrue, as Tolkien says. When He comes, we will be made like Him. 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will we be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Today we live in a Roman 7 world. I do the things I don't want to do. I'm just such a mixed bag of evil and good. And I know the good that I want to do, but I don't do it. I do the selfish stuff. I do the prideful things. But one day when He comes, we will be made like Him. No longer a mixed bag, but glorified, rejoicing in Him. So our prayer today and every day is come, Lord Jesus, destroy death, rid us of injustice, restore the world. What a glorious day. All you have to do to receive that is to ask Him to be your King. Jesus is King. And the proper response to that declaration isn't, eh, I don't know if I agree with his kingship. It's, no, I submit myself to you. Whatever you call God, I'm following each and every day. And when you do that, the, the righteousness of Christ is applied to you. You need not fear that judge the living and their dead ever again. On the night that he was betrayed, Christ took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood spilled for you, shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so each week we, we practice this sacred meal to remind ourselves that he has died for our sins and that we have received his righteousness. And we do it longing until he comes again. This is a, a, these are appetizers of the feast of heaven that we'll get to enjoy for all eternity. Let's, uh, let's pray and respond to, to Jesus. Guys, we come to your table today. Help us to hear from you, to submit ourselves to you, and to rejoice in what you have done for us. God, I pray for anyone who is running from your kingship in one way or another, uh, whether they are trying to be king of their own life, disagreeing with, your, disagreeing with your reign and rule. God, I pray that you will remind them that you are king, that you know best, that you want what's best, and their life best flourishes under submission to you. And so Christ, as we receive this meal today, be glorified and help us to be reminded of what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.